This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Good morning, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. It is, ladies and gentlemen, as if I'm ahead of the game. Again, it is as if I'm the only person who knows what a news story is, almost as though I'm the only journalist who's able to see the wood from the trees this morning. Everyone's getting worked up about what happened at Wembley on Sunday night. The failings of security, the poor performance by the police, the dangerous thuggery of the rogue England fans who broke through barriers to watch the game for free. Uh, And, of course, the racist abuse served up upon the players. Of course, had you been listening to talk radio, you'd have heard all that about on Monday. And you would have heard half the media are now covering other stories that we did yesterday. So today, of course, we'll be leading the way again by doing the other stories that nobody's doing. Uh, Baroness Fox is here, a woman who's never shy stepping forward uh, with some controversial opinions. I'll be asking her about last night's vote in the House of Commons, which will apparently make vaccines mandatory for people working in care homes. How did they slip this one in? Even some of the MPs were saying we haven't been given any data, we haven't been given any uh, facts, we don't know what to do about how to vote because nobody has actually explained what is going on. Tonya Buxton's also going to be here. She's got her boxing gloves at the ready for Sadiq Khan. The Mayor of London has apparently teamed up with Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham to insist that mask wearing must continue on public transport after July the 19th, even though the government says it will be voluntary. I'm sorry, am I the only one living in this world which I think has gone completely bonkers mad? We're fighting the fake Freedom Day on every front this morning. How about you? 0344 499 1000. We'll also be taking the parole board to task for their ludicrous decision yesterday to release serial killer Colin Pitchfall back onto the streets despite his horrific murdering and raping of two 15-year-old schoolgirls. Apparently, he's all right now. That's fine then. Uh, And he's going to be stopped. We should be stopping him. We're going to talk to Alberto Costa, uh, MP, about what we can do. Prime Minister's questions, of course, as well. We'll be joined by former Downing Street advisor Peter Cardwell to analyse the toings and throwings between Boris Johnson and Captain Einsight. Loads more going on, of course, as well, because you are here at the original and the best, the home of common sense. It is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And I'm delighted to say Claire Fox is here with me in the studio. Claire, very good morning. It's exciting to be in the studio. Isn't it nice? Well, you were talking only yesterday in the House of Lords about how you need to get people back to work, you need to get people back into the chamber. You know, it is, as you've described it now, a zombie parliament, not just in the Lords, but in the Commons as well. Absolutely. I mean, the whole point of... um, being able to hold the government to account is that you have people baying in the commons and their laws. Now, let's be honest, I'm not trying to pretend it's ever been perfect and Mm. there hasn't been a lot of problems. But when you've actually got a half-empty chamber and people are sort of zooming in, if they are zooming in, presumably half-listening with their cameras off when they are doing that, Mm. the whole atmosphere is one in which the government feel they can get away with Mm. anything, and they are. Yes, and they're running things through the system, as it were, without really any due care and attention, aren't they? Because effectively they've now brought in mandatory vaccination for a certain section of society, albeit quite a small section of society, but nevertheless, a pretty scary thought, isn't it? Well, I think the the thing about the care workers and mandatory vaccination was there was a rumour going round, there was a few hints about it, and I think that even MPs and people in the Lords thought this is going to be an argument or a fight. There'll be a big discussion about it. Nobody, and I mean nobody, was expecting an emergency vote yesterday, mm. a 90-minute debate. I mean, it's so insulting, isn't it? To it really bring is. something so important in. And, OK, there's pros and cons. I mean, I'm of the 
anti-mandatory vaccine yes, variety. Yes, of course, as am I. But all right, let me hear the arguments. Mm. Let me see the evidence. Let me see what the discussions are. I mean, it'll have some cursory outing in the Lords probably today or tomorrow in which we'll also have a kind of rushed nod through rubber yes. stamping exercise. But this treats the public with contempt. It's not about whether it treats MPs mm. or, or the Lords with contempt. It's the fact that something so serious that says that, oh, remember brave frontline workers that were all meant to have oh, yes. treated with utter respect are now going to be used as people who will lose their jobs if they don't take a medical procedure. And at the very least, that requires a lot of discussion, a lot of discussion about the morality of yeah. it, let alone the efficacy of it. And also the proof, by the way, uh, of so-called scientific data, which can show you that if you don't get a vaccination and you are working in a care home, that somehow uh, you're going to murder people. I don't think there is proof for that. I don't think they could come up with anything anywhere near that. The horrors coming out of care homes still remain that people are not being allowed to spend time with their loved ones. There's a regimented rules about you've got 30 minutes, you have to be all PPE'd up. Mm. The reason why so many people in care homes are having a terrible time at the moment is because they aren't able to be with the people that love them. And care home workers, to their credit, are as frustrated on behalf of the relatives as anyone else. Mm. But if you want to tackle the issue in care homes, you want to actually improve the health yeah. of people with dementia in care homes yes. or people who are young with autism And the amount of homes. quality time they can spend at the end exactly. of their life with people that they love. Exactly, and actually have some orientation mm. that makes it worth living, yes. right? And they think that what you do is you force... Those care home workers, the minority, by the way, who haven't had the vaccination yeah. to have it, even though the elderly people we're talking about are doubly vaccinated right. themselves. Yeah. The whole thing I mean, is we had ludicrous. This, we had this debate some weeks ago and we spoke to a care home uh, uh, owner um, who many people thought was, was ridiculous in his assertion that he would only employ people who had been double vaccinated. But if that's the way you want to do it, surely that's fine. Why do you need to pass a law that makes every single care home actually implement a law rather than saying, you know, because if you own a care home, you're perfectly free, I would imagine, uh, even though it might be considered a bit of a breach of of human rights, to say that, look, if you want to work here, these are the regulations that you have to follow. But you don't need to make a law about it, do you? Well, everything now becomes a law, and that's what's really dangerous because Mm. choice completely evaporates. Like you say, I mean, I know people who work in care homes and they're actually split down the middle. Ordinary care workers some of them say it's disgusting my colleagues won't have a vaccination why won't they and then others say why should we Mm. and you have that argument as you say if you own care homes you can make a decision even councils could make that decision if Mm. it was local authority but a law makes it a breach of law that that means you're a criminal yes now by the way we haven't got enough care home workers Mm. i would want to be going out and encouraging the nation's um, you know, unemployed people yeah. or people to swap jobs people and dedicate themselves. Jobs. Exactly. And say, this is a wonderful vocation. Mm. You can really make a difference in society. Now you have to say, would you like to make a difference in society? But by the way, can we check your papers on yes. the way in? And if you don't happen to like this medical procedure, we're not interested in you. And right. I really think that that kind of coercion, and it is coercion. And of course, I'm a big fan of the vaccine, but I want people to want it. And I do not think that any medical procedure should be coerced in that way.
I no, mean, it just can't not. be the law. I mean, you are a criminal if you don't have a medical procedure. Let's think about that yes. as a precedent-setting right. rule. And also, if it is a precedent-setting uh, rule, what happens next? You know, when are they going to suggest that anyone who works in a hospital has to be double vaccinated? Well, I or think anybody who drives a train has to be double vaccinated. They're going to. What, what is to stop them? Yeah. And actually, the scope of this bill, which is one of the things that some of the MPs did actually raise, when you read the fine print, as far as anyone had time to look at it before they had to vote for it, is quite broad. So it could be that if you're, like, working in the kitchens mm. in the care home, it's not just care home right. workers, if you're the guy who's delivering the new boiler yeah. or delivering... Right. I mean, who are they going to say you have to be vaccinated? Yeah. Is, is anyone who goes in a care home? Are they going to be checking the relatives to yeah. make sure? I mean, at what point would that scope not expand and expand? Mm. And once you've taken the logical leap of saying the law should be used to force a medical procedure, I don't see why you wouldn't use it elsewhere. I, I don't like scaremongering. I just think it's such a dangerous mm. precedent. Well, this is the problem. And lots of things that the government said they would never do, like vaccine passports, we're now still talking about the possibility of, of them coming in. And Helen Waitley, who is, of course, the uh, health minister said to MPs yesterday the impact assessment is being worked on and you go exactly. what so you vote first and then you work out how it's going to affect everybody exactly after. and that's exactly why isn't that the what, wrong way around exactly that's exactly why I think people thought that they were going to come and try and sell this in but they didn't even bother as mm. you say it's like show you the evidence afterwards and of course it's inevitably it's evidenced not evidence-based policy it's policy-based evidence isn't mm. it it's like sort of we'll have the policy now go and find me the yeah, evidence i know this is not even it's not scientific it's not right but one of the things about you were saying about uh, the zombie parliament is you know the parliament is about to go on recess for a very long mm. holiday yeah. even if no one else is on the 22nd of july everyone goes home till the 5th of september the government are just absolutely abusively using the system to get things mm. through before September the 5th or 6th, whenever it is, when actually they've then said every MP and every Lord has to come back, yes. right? Then it's like full steam ahead. So that's going to so be a full parliament. So that, so that And they don't want that kind of full parliament debate in this mm. thing, so they're pushing it through. Right. That's the scary bit. It's, it's so cynical. It's that explicit. It well, this is the thing that we've now all gathered, I think, that there's a reason why so many of the sage advisors are behavioural scientists, because that's now the new kind of magic. Uh, it's the new, you know, behavioural science is the new black, if you like, you know, where everybody's forced down a particular road and they're all going, oh, yeah, and then make them go that way and then they can go that way over there. I mean, this idea, for example, that they're going to do away with school bubbles and they're going to change the way school classrooms operate in August. And I'm going... Well, I've got kids, and even if you haven't got kids, you're pretty you're pretty clear that the school holidays have already started for most of them, uh, and certainly by the end of July, everyone's on holiday. So why are they saying they're going to change something in August? I mean, just it's very cynical. But but these behavioural psychologists are actually incapable, it seems to me, of understanding behaviour because mm. there's all these unintended consequences. Yeah. Because guess what? Because of the terrible tyranny of the school bubble, which is where kids are genuinely they're now back at school, but they're literally waiting every day for it to be it's your turn to go home and. Mm. Some kids saying, I've been sent home three times. It's not fair. But now what's happening is parents are keeping their kids out of school so they won't be isolated, Mm. so they'll be able to go on holiday. So the geniuses at the nudge unit Mm. had forgot to think about the consequences of these things. They'd also forgotten to think about the rather clever kids who have decided that they fancy a few days off, so they'll put a a negative test in. Play the system. Because the, the testing system, I couldn't believe that I didn't find this out until relatively recently. All you've got to put down is negative. You can literally write the word on a website. 
You don't yep. have to show a yep. test. You don't. I mean, you can. You have to put the batch number down. But you don't actually have to even take the test. You just have to say it was negative. Yeah. And then you're negative. Yeah. Or I positive. Mean, I, I think it's that's, ludicrous. I, it, the whole thing is ludicrous. But you know, as you've, I know that you've had her on. But you know, Laura Dodsworth. Yeah. In her book State Affair, which actually there's a discussion on it um, tomorrow night. Um, it's a great where she's, book, that. I'm really looking forward to also her kind of going through mm. it and updating it. Um, uh, so people should come along to that. But the reason I'm saying it is because she actually details, doesn't she, what was in plain sight, but none of us would have mm. the time to research, yeah. which is the conversations that the behavioural psychologists have about us. Mm. And we really... It makes me think that they just see the public as lab rats. Mm. You know, if we do this, they'll react in mm. this way. Now, as I say, they don't really understand common sense, so they often get it wrong. Yeah. But it's also the fact that they even talk about it, that you don't say we'll try and persuade the public of something. Yeah. It's how can we manipulate people into going along right. with this? Because we don't want to be seen to be actually having a view. We just want you to think that you... I mean, they really must think we are idiots, right? Yeah. They want us to think that we've yeah. made a decision to do something yeah. because they've made us do that. But I mean, of look course, at the mask situation, right? Yeah. Which is yeah. a now a complete shambles. Yeah. Boris Johnson saying, you know, it's going to be your own responsibility to, to wear a mask or not wear a mask. You should wear a mask if you're in a crowded place. Next thing we know, Patrick Vallance is at Wimbledon Centre Court in a crowded place, not wearing a mask. And I don't care whether he wears a mask or not. That's not my issue. My issue is you can't tell people one thing and then do something else. And so many of them have been doing that. But you can tell that what's come out in terms of messaging, and this is the kind of nudge unit, is what we must do is associate mask wearing with being selfless, kind people Mm. who care about society. And anyone who doesn't wear a mask is obviously a selfish, libertarian person who hates old people, who doesn't care about spreading viruses. And that message, sadly, is having a resonance. Mm. And you do meet people who say, well, why can't you just, for the sake of others, wear yeah, the mask? It's not, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. Well, actually, it's, it is that hard. Yeah, it's inconvenient, but it's nothing. But I would actually pose it another way. I mean, why is that narrative allowed to go without... I actually think that it's doing a disservice to our fellow citizens to wear masks when it will no longer be to necessary cover your face to cover your face and also it creates an atmosphere of fear it creates a, a sense that we are all virus carriers yeah it doesn't and it's treat dangerous them with, to be out it doesn't treat them with any honor if you actually look at your fellow citizen and think the problem with them is that they're a virus vector mm. who might infect you or your granny or whatever what we should be doing is encouraging people and you know the government has so messed up this alleged Freedom Day, by losing their nerve effectively. Mm. Instead of saying, right, everybody, now let's really encourage all the people who are a bit hesitant, a bit anxious, being frightened, let's say to each other, come on, just like we did for the Euros, you know, let's go out and have Mm. community come together, attempt to get back to normal as quick as possible. They say, just in case you think that we should go back to normal... We're going to give you the freedom to, but we're going to shame you yeah. if you behave in particular right. ways. That immediately has demoralised people yeah. and taken well, the I mean, wind out of the sails. Literally, as soon as the final whistle went and the penalty shootout was over, you know that was the feel-good factor gone. I know, and it's not coming back for a while. Well, actually, when you talk to you know, as it, well, you know, listeners, I'm sure you will. Well, you mean regular, a lot, regular, ordinary, people. like ordinary yeah, people, real people. Actually, they I really can't. did enjoy, and I, you know, I was worried. You know, I thought everyone's going to be so fed up after losing mm. in the football. But actually, when you talk to people, they say, "Well, it was terrible. We lost, but actually, do you know what? We had a great." Mm gathering we had all the family together all the right. local community came out we made videos we did yeah. this it was and they that feel good factor was a reminder to people of what sociability is yes. really about absolutely and i think that 
People won't forget that. And a lot that. of people have had the taste of that, don't They've want to go it, back. Exactly. And I think that's exactly. good. But I think that is definitely the case in London. Outside of London, in other parts of the country, it's not quite the same. But stay with us, Claire, because I've got much more to talk to you about on that front. Claire Fox is here. Baroness Fox, to you, I think you'll find. Uh, I am, of course, Mike Graham. This is the home of Common Sense. We are Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've got loads going on. Tony Buxton's coming up in a little while. We're going to be talking to Peter Cardwell. Will Geddes is here. Uh, Alberto Costa, MP, uh, on the Pitchfork decision, of course, as well. Baroness Fox is here. Uh, Non-affiliated peer. She was in the House of Lords speaking yesterday about why people need to come back to work and how office workers need to come back to work. Everybody needs to come back to work uh, so that we can get back to normal. Um, But it doesn't take a long, Claire, has it, for uh, the sort of virtue signalers to get involved? I mean, after what happened at the football, uh, we then saw this outpouring. I mean, I was more troubled by the yobbery and the thuggery of the people that broke into Wembley and how useless the sort of security was than I was about some of the stuff that happened afterwards, the racist um, tweets that were sent to the three guys who missed the penalties. Because everybody's now turned it into something else, haven't they? They've gone, kind of taken the ball and literally run with it. So the racism issue is so frustrating because it's very difficult to have a rational Mm. conversation about it, isn't it? I mean, I, I was of the opinion right from the start that... I didn't. I didn't have a big problem with the footballers taking the knee. Yeah, I thought it was a bit daft, but I didn't have a problem with it. But I equally didn't have a problem with anyone if they booed it, yeah. right? Because I understood it. Because I that's, that's the proper position of a democrat. Yeah, isn't it? and that's that's what. And somebody who believes in free speech, yeah. you know, if you want to do that, I don't think it's an effective way of fighting racism. But if a gesture is suits you, well, it's pretty clear you, that it right? didn't work, isn't it? No, but the thing that's happened subsequently is this. Anybody who booed is a racist. Anyone who defended anyone who booed has allowed a deluge of racism Mm. to swamp uh, the UK. And very quickly, we've got this institutionalised racism narrative. And we've got the running trust this morning now saying that they've somehow found out uh, incredibly uh, by their own hand that we are a sort of, you know, um, intrinsically racist country, which I don't believe Britain is. No, and, and the, the uh, by the way, just to say that Don't Divide Us, which is a great anti-racist campaign, have brought out a report saying, refuting true, every single yes. thing on the running, but you should get them on. Mm. But the thing that you're, you're right about saying is it's almost like an opportunism where people jump on this bandwagon. Mm. So, A, we, where there are racists of which there are racists in mm. society, they should be absolutely treated with the contempt absolutely. that we all feel for yeah. them. But the truth is, everybody does feel contempt for them. Yeah. The vast majority, 99.9% of people, hate those racists, yeah. treat them like they're uh, irrelevant, right. you know, and so on and so forth. And then we're told that despite that, and despite the fact that most ordinary people hate people being judged on the colour of their skin know that it's a bigotry mm. of the past which they want nothing to do yes. with they're then still accused of being racist right. I know and therefore the word racism has lost its punch and lost its power I mean racism was promiscuously used to describe leave voters it was promiscuously used most recently to say that anybody who supported those people who booed or just yeah. defended them are racist so what does racism mean well, well actually racism means having vile attitudes to people because of the colour of their skin yeah. usually because they're black and there's a kind of white nativism which we can all see on on social media but it's a handful of absolute horrible and i wonder and i don't know what you think about this because obviously it's an issue of freedom of speech in a way um if the if the if the people running social media were better at policing that then perhaps it would all go away well, it's also that's also because that's true. the only place they can really articulate yeah, it. But it's it's it is also the case that if you actually look at some of these really vile tweets, you'll find that their original tweet 
got liked by four people, mm. right? And it's usually the same four people. Yeah. However, what amplified it was the horrified anti-racist yeah. who sent it round to prove that the UK is a racist country. Yeah. So, well, England in particular. Mm. England is racist. Yeah. And they get thousands of likes. Yes. So everyone sees it. So it then starts to look like a so bigger problem it. than it is. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yes, I am ambivalent about the social media But there the are many people, though, in the, in the black and ethnic minority community who will say that what you're saying isn't true because, actually, um, John Barnes was on uh, with James Max yesterday saying, you know, the, banging the drum for the fact that this is not an equal country. And if you're black, you don't have as much opportunity as if you're white. And if you look at the boardrooms, you don't see as many black people as you would. Otherwise, I'm not sure I'm convinced by his argument because I think it's a, a great country with many more opportunities for everybody. Um, and quite a lot of white people don't have the opportunity to get into a boardroom either. Yeah, I mean, the, the, but that's the debate we should be having. Yeah. And one of the things that I thought was great about Tony Sewell's report was it tried to open up a discussion about that because I do not think that it is all fine if you're black. I yeah. mean, I do think that there can be informal discrimination. I do think there are issues. Yeah. But it's not as simple as saying no. that there is a but systematic now... racist exclusion no. of black people from the higher echelons of whereas, society. It's just not true. Whereas you can find plenty of adverts for BBC jobs which actually actively seek black and minority ethnic employees. Yeah. Now, if you imagine you did that the other way around and said, we only want white people to, we especially would like white people to apply for this. Yeah, but it's also the case that black and uh, ethnic minority people who disagree that there's systemic racism. Like Priti Patel. Priti Patel. I mean, there's a few, a handful that are well known, but one of my fellow MEPs, Christina Jordan, always makes this point that she, you know, there she is, a black woman, right? She stood as a Brexit party candidate. She got elected as MEP. She gets absolute abuse mm. all the time, yeah. showered with it, right? Yeah. She's a black woman. Yeah. What makes it all right to abuse her, to tell her that she's wrong? Mm. And people say we've got to listen to the lived experience of people. And I don't, you know, I'm not black. Mm. And I think that John Barnes actually has been a credit to raising the bar on this discussion, not being as kind of like accusatory yes. as others. And interestingly, he doesn't care about the taking of the knee. He's like, yeah, I don't he's, care one way exactly. or the other. But he tries to open up the debate. Yeah. But it should be a debate and a discussion. And you should not be excluded if you're white, but also... The lived experience of one black person is not exactly no. the same as the lived of experience of another black person. Of course it's not. Unless we think that they're all indistinguishable and they're a clump which is who a bit all racist. think the same, which, to be honest, yeah. is a racial But the way trouble is, like a lot of things now, we've got this altar and you can either be slaughtered on it and sacrificed to the great god of wokeism uh, or you can be deified. Yeah. by the great god of wokeism. And it's either one or the other. There's nothing in between. Yeah, but the other thing is is that racial thinking by its very nature is to think that other people or a group of others are less than human, or somehow like different. animals, yeah. right? And some of the debate that we've had in post the match has been a way of othering or treating as though they're less than human mm. football fans. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's an irony that yeah. that kind of disdain and contempt for people saying, you know, those type of yeah. people. Now, they don't... They want to say they're all racist, but then they give us evidence, just those few tweets we've yeah. talked about. When I say few, but, I mean, even the, the, the people who've kind of done the research on this have said, oh, we've found a 1,000 tweets that are doing the rounds. Mm. There's a lot of millions of people in this country, by the way. Right. Then there's this argument, well, they might all be Russian bots. I mean, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But I'm prepared to say that I have met, in my time plenty of racists right yeah. I don't think they don't exist no that's still not the same those people and they're often saddos of the yeah. worst type of course. they're not in power mm. I mean this idea that there's a systematic attempt to exclude black people yeah. is where I disagree but if there's an argument against that let's have that discussion 
Let's civilly debate it. Let's look at the evidence. Mm. But when, for example, the race report brought out by Tony Sewell, Tony Sewell tried to look at the evidence, tried to discuss it, everybody said, Uncle Tom, yeah. don't believe Shout that report. They're, they're the wrong kind of black yeah. people saying that. And then you think, well, even if you disagree with the Sewell report, can't we have a proper discussion yeah. on it? But no, immediately mm. you demonise the people mm. who disagree with you. I, 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 but having said that, I, I, there was an interesting thing, where, which I do think that our side who wants to have this debate in the open and doesn't think that everyone's a racist and all the rest of it we also have to try and avoid doing some of the lazy stuff ourselves of just saying oh you're anti-woke mm. and just that you know anybody takes a knees an idiot and mm. i mean in some ways it's a bit like well come on yeah i'm not bothered really you know it, what i mean let's, let's make it a little bit more you know what i mean is it is it is it but also it's a bit irrelevant right. take the name I mean, yeah right yeah i mean they did it so quick i barely saw them i know well that's what they started doing it it's more a like performative a yeah it's a genuflection, a genuflection well knee, well i, I was going to say they can't see me i'm on radio but they can now but Whenever I go into or past a Catholic church, because of my upbringing, yeah. I do this, right? right. Sign of the cross, Sign of the right? Cross. Sign of the cross is a kind of, I, it's drummed yeah. into me. Does that mean that if you were to query in great detail my Christian uh, and Catholic uh, uh, doctrinaire views, you'd find that no, it's a thing I do. Yes. And if you want to take the knee in that way to just go, I'm anti-racist, fine. But you won't fight racism simply by doing no. that. And I do not think that those people who object to that, but I, do, I don't think that the country is full of people bothering to boo. It's the way it's been weaponised, mm. this whole discussion, mm. that means that we won't fight racism, by the way. No, We're it not won't make get any anywhere. It won't make any difference. It will not, absolutely. Baroness Fox, thank you very much indeed for coming in. Thank you for, for being so sensible. Welcome back to the home of Common Sense, which is, of course, now on your TV, as you've just been hearing. For details of how to do it, how to get it, where to watch it, go to talkradio.tv or download the talkradio.tv app and all will be revealed. It is a thing of great beauty. Uh, now, coming up, uh, we've got many, many more things to talk about. We've got Tony Buxton coming in, who's not happy at all about Sadiq Khan's idea uh, that the TFL organisation, which runs all the public transport systems in London, uh, is going to be insisting on people wearing masks. I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. not quite sure what the legalities of that are going to be. Uh, but before we do any of that, uh, let us talk to Mr Alberto Costa, Conservative MP for South Leicestershire, Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Attorney General. Alberto and I have spoken many times about the case... Uh, of Colin Pitchfork, the double murderer, the serial killer in many ways, as you could call him, uh, who raped and brutally murdered uh, two 15-year-old schoolgirls three years apart, was sentenced effectively to life in prison. The parole board said he was going to be let out. Alberto tried to get them to reconsider. Uh, the government tried to get them to reconsider. They apparently have decided not to reconsider. Let's find out where we are. Alberto, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike, and thank you very much, as ever, for inviting me on to your programme to discuss this important matter. Yes, I mean, we were quite hopeful the last time you and I spoke about this, that uh, the Parole Board would see sense, uh, would see that this is not an ordinary run-of-the-mill case. This is a brutal, ghastly um, two murders that this man was locked up for. Um, you pointed out that he's still only 60 years of age. Uh, he's still got plenty of life left in him. Um, and the idea that he's going to be free to walk our streets is quite chilling, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, Mike, we should never forget that at the core of this, at the very heart of all of this, were two girls, mm. Don Ashworth and Linda Mann, two 15-year-old innocent teenage girls who would be roughly my age today, I'm, I'm almost 50, mm. um, had their lives not been so brutally uh, terminated by this vile psychopath mm. who sexually offended, raped them and horrifically murdered them. 
I think it's right, Mike, that uh, we ask as a society, uh, is it ever right to release people like that who have mm. committed these sorts of crimes, regardless of whether they've been rehabilitated? Mm. Look, I'm not the type of person that believes in locking people up and throwing away the key, and that's not what I'm arguing. And you were right to say that you know these sorts of crimes, thankfully, are very rare in society. Yeah. But when they do happen, how should we treat these people that are convicted? Should they not get life, meaning life? Should they not spend the whole of their natural life behind bars? I think if Pitchfork had committed his crimes today, it would likely result in him spending the whole of his natural mm. life behind bars by, by getting what's called a whole life tariff. But of course, we treat sexual offences and crimes against women much more seriously today than we ever did in the past. Mm. And why can that particular kind of attitude towards those types of crimes not be stapled on to this one, if you like, and the punishment um, meted out be taken into account for what it would mean now rather than just what it meant then? It seems to me the parole board uh, have rejected the government's grounds for appeal without really explaining why. So it's right to say that, Mike, this was within the gift of the parole board. It's independent of governments, independent of parliament, as it should be. It'd be quite wrong with me as an MP deciding who stays in jail and, or not. It's quite right it's within the hands of the independent parole board. But I think, as we saw in the case of John Warboys, the parole board can get things wrong. And that's why parliament introduced these reconsideration mechanism rules. I was very grateful to the government, Secretary of State for Justice, for listening to me and other colleagues and my constituents when he applied the power given to him to ask the parole board to think again. So government has done what it can, parliamentarians have done what it can, it was back into the parole board's hand, but the parole board has deemed the case compliant with the law and not irrational, and that's why they've reaffirmed their decision. But what I can say, the government has promised a full route and branch review of the parole board system. And certainly my, my five or six years experience of the parole board, I will certainly be using this case as instructive on the consultation for that full routine branch review of the parole board. I want to see less opacity. I want it to see much more transparency, less opaqueness, much more communication for victims, victims' families and MPs in the process than we currently have. I think the process can be improved, should be improved. And I think that it's right to ask that question, should people that commit those sorts of offence ever be released? And what sort of position is it that we are now in, in terms of the, le the legal situation? Is there a further attempt that can be made to stop his release? So there can be. So the reconsideration mechanism rules were introduced. You, you may remember the John Warboys case were three years mm. ago, four years ago. The parole board made another awful decision. And at the time, the government couldn't do anything. So what happened is there was a thing called well, didn't a judicial the attorney, review. The Attorney General um, refused, did he not, to do a judicial review at the time? Well, he couldn't because you cannot, it wasn't the Attorney General, Secretary of State for Justice, you can't judicially review a department that you're responsible for. You can't take an action against yourself. So at the time, the government was frankly impotent. Yeah. And that's why it brought in, post the judicial review launched by third parties against the War Boys decision, that's why the government brought in, rightly, these reconsideration mechanism rules. Mm. I think we need to look again, and that's why the government has promised a full root and branch review of the parole board system, because I just think there's something not quite right where an individual can commit those forms of offences, go to prison at the age of, you know, be convicted at the age of 28 and come out at the age of 61. There's just something not right. Right. Um, I, I believe in a parole system. I, I'm not suggesting that we get rid of parole at all. 
Um, I do believe in a parole system, but if you've committed that sort of offence, raping two people and murdering yeah. them, I, goodness, should you ever be released for having done, well, I think, done that? Surely my, my opinion is you shouldn't. No, surely it would make sense to have a special category of crime, uh, which parole does not apply to. That would make sense to me. It doesn't seem that difficult to make that leap. Well, the parole board had the decision, as it did It did refuse Pitchfork's uh, earlier parole board request back in 2016 and 2018. So it was within the gift of the parole board to make that decision if it wanted to. Mm. You ask me, is there any other avenue? There is. I mean, the, the avenue is the court system. If um, relevant parties uh, wanted to take judicial review against the parole board, that is still open for them to do that. I can't do that as an MP. That's not an avenue that's open to me to do. I've done everything I can do as a parliamentarian. What I must now do is going forward, focus on two things. One, that the conditions upon which he's been granted his uh, temporary release on licence are stringently adhered to. I understand that there's strict licence conditions, but again, I've not been told the specifics. I've mm. only been told sort of opaquely that there's an exclusion zone near where he committed these crimes. But I've not been told, how far does that extend? Is it half a mile, a mile, yeah. five miles? And will he, and will he have a, a, a new identity, which we're then having to pay for? Will we be subsidising his well, life? All, all these questions, I think, remain to be to be answered. And that's where my focus will now turn. I've got to protect my constituents and do everything I can to uphold public safety. So I'm going to now be focusing on that and trying to get absolute clarity on, does he have a new identity? How far away will he be living? What is the exclusion zone within which he's not allowed, not permitted to go in? For example, the M1 goes through my constituency and runs very close mm. to Enderby, the, the village where he committed these awful crimes. Is he allowed to go through and up the M1? Um, how will he be monitored? Mm. Is he monitored 24-7, etc.? These are all the sorts of questions that my mind now needs to focus on to ensure that my constituents are safe absolutely well i wish you good luck alberto thank you very much indeed for talking to us we will continue uh, to keep on the case here uh, because i think it's an absolute horror show uh, that this bloke is ever going to be released back into civilized society it should not be happening uh, with the help of alberto costa conservative mp for south leicestershire uh, hopefully it won't happen but we will keep you abreast of the developments legally uh, and otherwise 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to Talk Radio, the home of Common Sense. Now available, of course, on TV. You've got to do uh, what you want to do, which is this. Go to talkradio.tv, download the talkradio.tv app. And if you've got a Samsung TV uh, or any flat screen TV, you'll be able to watch us in glorious uh, Technicolor, high definition as well. Uh, You might be quite surprised how much you enjoy it. We are the original, we are the best, of course, except no substitutes uh, on anything like that. Uh, Coming up, uh, we're going to be doing Prime Minister's questions, of course, at the top of the hour, 12 o'clock. Peter Cardwell will be in for that uh, and we'll find out what Captain Hindsight is going to be up to today because we know uh, as we heard from Claire Fox that there's going to be a recess pretty soon uh, so soon they'll be all off on their holidays doing whatever they like uh, and not doing very much work of course uh, that would be wrong to suggest because of course they'll still be claiming their expenses won't they 0344 499 1000 Tony Buxton uh, talking a great deal of sense there about the ludicrous idea um, that Sadiq Khan uh, is now going to suggest that you will have to continue to wear a mask on the TFL transport system whether you like it or not I don't see how that is going to work right now though uh, we're going to take a trip over to Northern Ireland Colin Breen is with us commentator uh, of course and author of A Force Like No Other front page of the Daily Mail today at last justice for our troops soldiers will not be prosecuted over historic crimes in Ulster Um, but IRA terrorists are also off the hook Colin a very good morning to you welcome Good morning, Mike. So, how has this news been received um, in the province? Because obviously it's a kind of, uh, shall we say, tinderbox type time of the year there, isn't it? It is a tinderbox at the time with the um, parades being in full flight. But that aside, the subject of the amnesty, which I suppose Tony Blair started with his get-out-of-jail-free letters that no one knew about, it's a very emotive issue here, the legacy. Um, And... A lot of people would find it very obnoxious to equate soldiers and police with the behaviour of terrorists yeah. and the coupling everybody together with um, you know no further action, as it were. And um, I've no doubt the government's committed to trying to find uh, a way through it. But you have to wonder um, whether it's right to bunch everyone together or some other way couldn't be found, which I accept is difficult um, in the long term. But nonetheless, it does leave a bad taste in your mouth. I suppose it does, but I mean, given given that the um, Good Friday Agreement, I suppose, already made arrangements and, and made it possible for IRA terrorists who were jailed to be freed. I mean, that sort of that horse has kind of left the stable, if you like, hasn't it? Well, it has, and, and certainly some of them served very little time. But I mean, you can't help but think of people, um, you know, like the, the Birmingham bombs in nineteen seventy four. And, uh, you know, Julian, I mean, the campaigns that they have fought and the people are known who did it, but no one was even pursuing them or investigating it. Right. Uh, and you can't help but feel sorry for them that, that they fall between two sticks. 
Exactly yeah. right. And I don't know whether you saw, but there was a bit of, um, uh, shall we say, um, unease yesterday when an MP deliberately misused parliamentary privilege to name one of the soldiers accused of murdering two men during Bloody Sunday in 1972, uh, a guy called Colum Eastwood, um, named Soldier F. Um, has there been any ramifications over there over that? There, there's certainly been plenty of comment about it. And of course, with everything here, you'll get to use mm. um I, I must admit that um you know colin eastwood has carried the coffin of terrorists himself with an armed body of shots fired over it uh and then for him to come up and name you know an old age pensioner in parliament and hide behind the parliamentary privilege you know it wasn't confident enough to come out and just name him and they're calling people murderers this man has never been convicted of anything no and, it's and a I shocking hear- it's a shocking thing to do and it's potentially very dangerous as well isn't it well, it's potentially very dangerous for Soldier F. Uh, I mean, he's theoretically going to go to the, the, the top of lists of, of any uh, terrorists mm. that are still interested in seeking revenge and will be quite a prestigious target for them. Yeah. No concern about that. No, absolutely right. I mean, strangely enough, by complete coincidence, I was watching, only because it's just turned up again on Netflix, in the name of the father, um, that incredible film uh, made about the Guildford Four. Um, and... I was quite sort of taken aback because I kind of knew, but I'd sort of forgotten that nobody was ever really done for that. No, in the end, and they didn't seem to. I can't say that they weren't looking for anyone else, but it certainly um, stopped. Um, and uh, I can remember there was quite a bit of controversy when the, if you remember the convictions were found to be unsafe. Yes, well, that's right. Well, that's what the film's about, basically. It's, it's Daniel Day-Lewis, who plays Jerry Conlon. Um, and it's a brilliant film. Uh, Jim Sheldon directed it. And it's all about the injustices that, that, that were being meted out by the British police in those days and how they basically just kind of fitted these guys up. But at the end of the film, it says what happened to them all. And obviously one of them ended up marrying the American ambassador, one of the Kennedys. And so it's quite a sort of romantic story. But yeah, it then said that nobody was ever found uh, or tried for actually bombing that pub in Guildford. That's, uh, that's, that's quite correct. And in fact, the, the guy Hill who married one of the Kennedys was also charged with another murder in Belfast. Mm. Um, but it, it, it was a, a strange time. And in the 70s, I mean, all sorts of things may have occurred here and there that it was all very embryonic what way this this was being dealt with because we'd never been properly um propositioned by an active terror group the way we were for some decades right no exactly right and what's been the um uh, sort of the atmosphere even before this i saw uh, some footage of a massive bonfire sort of keeling over in one of the streets uh, because it's you know it's marching season but it's also bonfire season i understand um is the tension um sort of waning slightly given the 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 uh, the peace agreement and also the whole Brexit business and the Northern Ireland Protocol? Well, it has settled and the, the protocol is being debated actually in a few days. The protocol certainly did bring things uh, back to life a bit and the sort of rekindled unionism, uh, I suppose, a bit which had uh, gone a bit to sleep, mm. uh, shall we say, but um, it certainly got it going again. The bonfires every year, I mean, they've been going on for centuries and were originally lit to guide William's troops down the burying locks. Right. It wasn't anything as uh, what it's turned out now. But, of course, there's competition between rifle areas and who can have the biggest one. And uh, with the pallets, and I mean, some of them are feats of engineering. Right. I have to admit that uh, you think they're trying to put the first orange man on the moon. <laughs> I mean, the first the one, the one that I saw was huge, the one that fell over. Yeah. It, it's absolutely massive and very dangerous as well. I mean, I'm quite sure that they could um, celebrate or enjoy their uh, custom without perhaps 
um, the, the danger element uh, for houses near Bannon, and indeed the spectators and supporters. No, exactly right. Well, let's see whether or not this is indeed the end uh, of the of the, uh, the the story of uh, trying to prosecute troops for something that they did many years ago. Think so, but even if you think the uh, Good Friday Agreement is twenty odd years old and, and you know we're still fiddling with it, uh, you wonder how long it will go on or whether there there will be an end. And there are agitators who, of course, have no interest in the end ever coming. No, well, that <laughs> is that is always the problem, there isn't it? There are people in whose interest it is to keep these divisions going. Yeah, not resisting, so they're not going to roll over to anything, really. No, exactly right. Colin, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Colin Breen, uh, commentator based in Northern Ireland, author of A Force Like No Other, on the news uh, that soldiers now uh, who served in Northern Ireland will no longer face the threat of prosecution for something that they did while they were serving in the army, um, which is something I think a lot of people always felt rather uneasy about. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, we're going to talk to our good friend, Mr. Will Getty, security expert, uh, because there's rather an odd story around in which we're basically being told by MI5 they want us to look for Russian and Chinese spies. But, Will, um, very good afternoon to you. Before we start with that, I must ask you, because you'll know presumably a little bit about this, what on earth went wrong at Wembley on Sunday? Because, you know, I mean, that security detail was more limp, uh, I think, than a sort of a paper fence. I mean, when they you know, when, when these guys started running at the stewards, they all just sort of fell over. Yeah, it's, um, it's a bit of a shocker, that one, Mike, actually, because I think... You know, probably a lot of our security um, bods were thinking more about the sort of potential terrorism impact, mm. because uh, bear in mind, we're still at a, a very heightened level of awareness and also potential risk. But the fact that they weren't prepared, they didn't have those access control measures. And this is a, probably one of our most internationally recognized stadia. Um, to manage a deluge and rush by fans to try and get in there and not have that sort of advanced warning um, I think there are going to be a lot of questions being asked. And, and I must admit, this came as a massive surprise when they, they were so successful. Well, do you know what happened? was because um, I, I remember watching the, the Denmark game, um, where apparently it also had happened. But UEFA sort of tried to keep it quiet because they didn't want the game, the final, to be cancelled as a result of sort of breaches of COVID restrictions or something, right? But I remember looking at the, uh, the stadium and, and thinking, you know, one side of it looks a lot more crowded than the other. So clearly what was going on was these people were getting in, <laughs> occupying the seats that would have probably been empty um, and, and thereby just staying there. And it seems the same thing happened on, on, uh, on Sunday night. They were not ejected. The, the, the police and the stewards just left them there. Yeah, no, I drew the same conclusions. Um, it, to me, Mike, it looked very much like someone had done their reccees in advance, looked for the weakest point of access potentially into the stadium. And then the chatter moved pretty rapidly and quickly amongst all those that were attending. There would inevitably have been those that already had that advanced information as to where they should form up, if you like. That's mm. the term that we would use uh, before, obviously, attempting a breach and an incursion. Um, and to me, that would say, if I was advising Wembley, it would be you need to be paying a little bit more attention to that sort of hostile surveillance reconnaissance right. that could be undertaken in advance. And, you know, any access control is only as strong as its weakest point. Exactly. And apparently there was an awful lot of chatter going on uh, on, on sort of places like Telegram, where people were messaging each other with inf information on which was the most likely gate that you could get through. So, you know, there was plenty of um, information out there if they were looking for it, which I'm sure any decent security outfit would be doing. 
Yeah, well, that's something that, you know, we specifically do, you know, for some of our clients. We, we monitor all those uh, secret messenger chat lines and uh, WhatsApp groups to see if there is any kind of particular chatter that's coming up. If you know how to do it, it's actually not that difficult to try and intercept and, and find out those groups. But again, it depends on the players, uh, sorry, on the on the individuals, not yeah. the players, the individuals obviously who are attempting it and as to whether they're keeping their circle kind of small and controlled in terms of how they're sharing that information. And to be fair to Wembley, it wouldn't be that hard with the number of people that turned up to then fundamentally say, right, pass the word super quick. We're going to storm, obviously, this entrance. Get yourselves over here quick. Yeah, absolutely right. Let's get to the matter in hand. Ken McCallum, Director General of Security Services, um, has given a speech in which he basically says he's going to urge the public to adopt the same levels of awareness and vigilance about state threats as they do with terrorism. He seems to be worried about what he calls, um, you know, actors, hostile actors uh, in uh, in various places like universities, like sort of research organisations, uh, where thoughts and uh, theses and ideas and projects are being nicked basically stolen and taken back to either russia or china uh, and worked on there yeah no absolutely and and this has been a prevailing threat for a very very long time mike uh it's just becoming more prolific in so much as obviously a lot of that data that's being controlled or generated or developed in various universities and faculties where you have a lot of very, very smart, bright young people mm. who are coming up with solutions to all sorts of things. You know, you've got Imperial College, you've got obviously the Oxbridges and various other technical facilities where young people are sharing ideas which hopefully are going to provide great evolutions in technology in the future. But these technologies obviously have huge intellectual property right value to other markets. Now, China has been renowned for it. I mean, an old friend of mine who was a, a senior member of the FBI who was based now in Beijing. I remember the last time I saw him over there, I said to him, so how is your IPR protection going for the client that he mm. was looking after? And he said, what IPR protection will? <laughs> so, you know, when you have people in somewhere like China, companies operating there, they have to be very cautious. So again, it's that path of least resistance. And the easiest places is to cultivate and to uh, recruit or groom individuals through covert means. And LinkedIn is a very good example. The, the hacks that have happened on there, the 500 million odd users' details that were leaked, uh, plus obviously the subsequent attack, which then increased to 700 million. You know, there are people that are socially engineering contacts. And you've got to be very careful about who you're connecting with mm. and what you're sharing. Well, one of the problems, it seems to me, in the world of academia is that the Chinese government, uh, and very, through various other sort of Chinese commercial operations, has bought its way in to an awful lot of the top universities in this country. They've sponsored chairs, they've sponsored kind of buildings, you know, they've got all sorts of uh, fingers in all sorts of pies. So it's going to be quite difficult, I would have thought, to keep them out of those places, isn't it? Yeah, incredibly difficult, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I certainly know of a few ultra-high net worth individuals and business people from that part of the world who've bought a science block or, mm. or they've contributed, obviously, to the faculty in some financial um proportion to obviously ease the path of their own children potentially joining their university i wouldn't say that necessarily goes on all the time but we, i think we can <laughs> well it's good it enough up. for muammar gaddafi at the lse wasn't it because he, <laughs> yeah. he, he there was a building named after him yeah it's a little bit of a giveaway isn't it mike yeah. um so yeah i mean in terms of uh, the access i wouldn't say it's necessarily through those high profile individuals however the information that is being again circulated developed evolved in those faculties 
the faculties won't necessarily treat it in the same way as a major multinational conglomerate or a large technology company who will have the policies, procedures and processes in place. And to get onto those campuses, and I do know of occasions where recruitment has taken place on campuses or certainly off campus faculties and facilities where some of the students will sort of socialize, mm. where that kind of data is overheard, eavesdropped or even stolen. You know, laptops have gone missing. All sorts of stuff has gone on. Oh, yeah, it's all very tricky. He also talks a lot about Africa and says we should worry about Africa because China is there in large numbers, competing not so fairly when it comes to trade. And he also says uh, there's an organisation called the Wagner Group from Russia, which is all over the place in, uh, in, in Africa. I don't, know what, I don't know what the Wagner Group is. Have you heard of them? Yeah, I've heard of Wagner Group. Um, you know, again, there's a, there's a lot of untapped resources in Africa, mm. Uh, not just in the very obvious sort of extraction industries, you know, oil, gas, coal and, uh, and minerals yeah. in, and especially diamonds, Mike, absolutely. Uh, but there is also a lot of burgeoning in, uh, and blossoming intelligence and uh, academia and technology, which doesn't get so well reported. So, again, for some of these companies to get into certain countries where perhaps, again, the easing of the path into trade agreements uh, can be... Um, uh, can be greased by various means, if you like, Mike. Uh, that opens up again various opportunities for gathering and harnessing and, and holding control of some of that information and mm. then utilizing it back in their own countries. Now, that can be described as standard, normal overseas business operations. However, again, it's, it's how it inveigles its way into certain facilities to be able to gather that information. I mean, we know about the COVID vaccines. Uh, certainly those that are being developed in certain parts in the subcontinent where the intelligence gathering on some of the sort of the data around that has been obviously very, very important mm. to being able to develop other vaccines through other third party operations. Well, it's come a long way, hasn't it? I remember many years ago when I was in India, there was a big scandal because um, uh, India was sort of uh, in cahoots with the Russians and America was in cahoots with the Pakistanis. Um, and so they were trying to kind of, you know, vie with each other to get information out of each country. And uh, the Russians, I think, got a new tank, which they gave to India. And the plans for the tank and the design um, sort of details for the tank were, were, were sold to an American operation um, for a case of Johnny Walker Black Label whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can believe that. I can totally believe that. I mean, uh, you know, there, there, there are ways to be able to trade uh, with commodities that don't necessarily have to involve money. I mean, certainly with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, you know, a lot of companies that find themselves involved in things like kidnappings. I certainly know of one particular case where, you know, a couple of foreign workers were kidnapped. Uh, this was in West Africa, mm. and the ransom was actually uh, satisfied through 200 pairs of Wellington boots. <laughs> uh, you know, the, these things do go on, Mike. I hope they were hunters. Well, I don't think they were quite that posh. Really? So you can even get <laughs> the, the, the down market ones. So imagine having <laughs> a ransom paid where such a low level. That would be kind of embarrassing. Well, we could cycle into a whole, a whole other yes. realm of problems with counterfeit hunter boots, for example. <laughs> well, we'll have to have that lunch one day and you can tell me all about it. Will, thank you Love very to. much indeed. Will Geddes, the security expert, on the fact that we have to now be much more wary uh, of Chinese uh, and Russian 
um, hostile agents, you might say, who might not look like spies, who might not think like spies, but definitely are spies. It's not a question of James Bond. Uh, it's more a question of uh, in the academic establishments, in the businesses of this country um, and in the commercial activities of an awful lot of companies as well. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.